Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road Campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. Now, the Ark of the Bible, we're taking eight weeks to do a very quick overview of Scripture. And the story so far that we covered last week was creation, that God made a very good creation. And and um, we see the character of God revealed, but also the character and the position, the place of humankind. And so mankind were image bearers. We were created in the image of God and created to have relationship with God, a, a love relationship with him and with one another. And we were given stewardship and authority, actually co-rulers over the earth, over creation, to bring about uh, God's order into creation. So it was, it was a good story, right? <laughs> that was the beginning. And this week we're going to talk about the fall. And um, in, in many ways, it's, we're still at the beginning of the story. You know, the Ark of the Bible, story arc, we're still very, very close to the beginning And all of this gives us an introduction to understand our world. And it applies as much today as it did to the people who first read it. So we're going to quickly go through chapters 3 through 11 of Genesis, talking about the fall and and the consequences of the fall. But God had said in Genesis 2, uh, he commanded man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Everybody say freely. Oh, right. So there was freedom in that garden. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. So God gave mankind freedom of choice. Now, that freedom was within the boundaries of God's creation. And so freedom of choice doesn't question God's sovereignty Because every choice that they had, every option, was all contained within the constraints of God's sovereignty. And so a lot of people have a a problem comprehending the the tension between freedom uh, of choice and and free will versus the sovereignty of God. It's kind of like if I took my kid into a giant toy store, like Toys R Us when it used to be around in the day, Sad, there aren't big toy stores anymore. That's <laughs> the illustration still works. Because <clears throat> you know, if I took them in and said, "Listen, you can have anything in a store," you know, and really meant it, now, just pick out anything. You know, there's an incredible choice there. You know, the kid was smart; they'd find the most expensive toy in the store. You know. <laughs> Back in the day, it was battery-powered little jeeps and stuff. <clears throat> But they didn't constrain my sovereignty because whatever free choice that that person, the child made would still be within the boundaries of my sovereignty. And so in the same way, God gave us incredible freedom, um, yet there was a restriction. So they, they could eat of any tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God intended mankind and still intends mankind to live in loving relationship with him, but in inherent in the choice to love is the choice to not love. Otherwise, it's not love. It's training an animal. 
or uh, programming a, a, a machine. And God wanted more than that. And our position in relationship with him is more than that. And so it demands freedom of choice within the constraints of God's sovereignty so that we can truly be in a relationship of love. And so this is what happens in Genesis 3, 1 through 10, not the whole story, but part of it. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made and said to the woman, has God indeed said to you, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, ah, you sure about that? You're surely going to die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. All right, so in paradise, Garden of Eden, a new character is introduced, um, the serpent. And I believe, as I've said before, that these original origin stories, these stories from Scripture, happened exactly the way we read them, although it's depicted in a story format, in a way that could be uh, remembered generation after generation. And so this is, a, this is an accurate telling of the story, but we don't know all of the details. We do know that in the garden, prior to sin, the serpent, the tempter, was there. Right? And that Eve did not choose the fruit, nor Adam, because he was inherently prone to sin. And so even within paradise, there is this freedom. Again, that's what makes our ability to enter into a relationship of love genuine. And so here we have this new character, the serpent, and we find out much, much later, this is actually the last book of the Bible, so near the end of the arc of the story, but it reveals to us more of who this character is. Um, It says, the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And so here we see, and there's other places in the story where we catch glimpses of who this character is that even in heaven, in the presence of, of God, the devil created a rebellion and was cast out. 
And so the garden as a creation of God, uh, having the existence of a tempter or having the existence of evil is just part of the reality of the universe we live in. And we need, as, as mankind, need to live in dominion over that rather than coming under the dominion of it. Unfortunately, in this story, because it's true to the human nature, mankind came under the deception and under sin. So the serpent deceived Eve, but Adam knowingly ate, violating God's will and commits sin. And I don't know if you're like me, but it just seems like, come on, God. It's just a fruit off of a tree, right? What's the big deal? It's a big deal, right? It's a choice. And, and, and Eve was deceived, but Adam, who was standing there, it's not like he was off in another part of the earth. He was there with her. And for whatever dynamic, the Bible doesn't explain the dynamics, but I think we can see the influence of peer pressure, the influence of choosing something lesser over the greater relationship and obedience of uh, to God in his word. In that moment, Adam chose. And it's important that we understand that sin came through uh, to the human race through Adam's disobedience. He, it was a clear act of disobedience. Adam wasn't deceived. doesn't say that anywhere in Scripture. In fact, it makes a point that he wasn't. And I think it's the book of Timothy. So in Romans 5, we see this a little explained. It says, therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. All right? And so we have this inherited nature of sin that we get from our, our, uh, that we get from our, parents who got it from their parents, that going all the way back to the original sin in the garden. But the truth of the matter is, even if it wasn't for that, we would sin, all right? Because all have sinned, and we all come to that same place of having that choice. And so there's a number of consequences, actually, in this little teeny story. It's amazing how much information is packed into this. And I could do a whole six-month series just on this passage. Trust me, okay? (laughs) Well, we're just going to whip through some of the consequences of sin. Uh, Sin brought an awareness of their nakedness and shame. You know, prior to that, there was no shame. There was no no need to cover themselves. They were were happy. We don't know how long, by the way, uh, how much time transpired between chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Genesis. There's no indication. It could have been 100 billion years. We don't know. Adam's age at the birth of their uh, third child is given. Seth, they don't give his age when uh, Cain and Abel were given. But even then, I don't think they counted years when they were intended to live forever. And so I've always understood that as that's when they started, that's when the clock started ticking. All right, and so Seth was born. I think it's 134 years uh, when Adam was 134 years after his creation. Maybe, probably more so after his eviction 
after sin. But that's a debate that you can have with one another. (laughs) Sin brings fear. Sin brings sorrow and pain in childbirth or toil and laboring for food. And by the way, the pain of childbirth and the toil of labor is the same Hebrew word. In other words, for both the woman and the man, you're just going to have suffering, you're going to have hardship, you have pain um, in uh, whatever area that you're called to. The serpent is cursed, the ground, which would be the earth is cursed. And so here we see in the original story of Scripture that our environment is affected as a result of the choices of mankind in a negative way. And so we have, uh, we, it demonstrates that the, the earth itself comes under a curse as a result of the actions of uh, humankind. Sins brings, sin brings death. And of course, it wasn't immediate death, but, but what was immediate was their spiritual death, that separation from God that ultimately and inevitably would lead to physical death and, and without the redemption of God, eternal death. Sin also brings separation between uh, Adam and Eve, between mankind. Before sin entered into the world, they were ruling as equals. But afterwards, as part of the consequences of sin, it says um, to Eve that her husband would rule over her. And so the whole aspect of being ruled over is actually part of the consequences of sin. And in the redemption of, of mankind, we're, we're brought back up to the place of equality. Beforehand, they were both called Adam, right? which is, it could actually be translated human beings. Right? But afterwards, Adam gives Eve a name. Uh, and so, so there's a, a sense of there's, there's, a, there's a distancing, not only between uh, mankind and God, but between man and man. That's what sin brings, division and strife. Sin, of course, causes them to be evicted from the garden. Uh, and the creation story, therefore, gives us um, the origin story of mankind, where we came from. But the story of the fall gives us the origin story for all the sorrow and suffering and separation and death we experience in life. And it's part of who we are. You can't get through life without enduring these things. And you say, uh, the question is, well, why? Why do these exist? And this story, the dynamics that we see play out in this simple story actually answers some of the the most uh, deepest questions of mankind. So there's three ways in the story that God's redemption, though, is revealed. And the first is in Genesis 3.15. It says, I will pit, this is um, God intervening and speaking to the serpent and saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and, and you shall bruise his heel. And so this is the first prophetic scripture speaking of the coming Messiah right there. It's, it's, it's shrouded in mystery. I'm certain that Adam and Eve had no idea what he was talking about, nor did they understand for many, many, probably centuries. But as the story unfolds in the Ark of the Bible, we see that this is the promise that the descendant of Eve would crush the serpent's head, but the serpent would bruise his heel, and we see that played out in Jesus. Jesus here is seen in this part of the Ark of the Bible 
as the promised Messiah who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And we uh, see this referred to in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, where it said, Inasmuch then as the children uh, have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, God also, uh, likewise shared in the same through the person of Jesus Christ, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. And so here, way, way at the, near the end of the story in Hebrews, it's referring back to this original story of, of sin and death and fear and, and how Jesus comes to, to crush the work of the enemy that brings fear and holds us in bondage to death. Uh, and we see Jesus clearly right from this point. And it's also a clear representation of God's redemptive uh, uh, aspect in the story. The second part is Genesis uh, three twenty one. It says, For Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. <clears throat> okay, how do you make a tunic of skin? Okay, so that's, that would be a leather coat. You kill an am, animal. Blood had to be shed. And I thank God, you know, allowed Adam and Eve. I recently heard a, a pastor share this. Actually, it was when I was in Mexico. Uh, Don, uh, and he said uh, there was a Jewish tradition. I haven't researched this, but I trust Don. He's a great man of God. Uh, the Jewish tradition is that God had Adam actually slay the animal and shed the blood. Um, and so, you know, that's a messy thing. Have you ever seen an animal butchered? You know, it's messy. That's why I decided I didn't want to hunt. Because <laughs> you're going to cut them open. <laughs> Stinks. All right. But you, you, you experience the consequence of, death, of sin when you see the death of an animal. And the blood that was shed and the, the drying of the skin, you know, the, again, this was, this was an act that God did to teach Adam and Eve, but also to teach us. It displays the necessity of shedding blood to cover the sin and to cover the shame. And it foreshadowed the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament, but also foreshadowed the necessity of the death of Jesus Christ coming as the Messiah. And so in this story are these magnificent uh, hints to the uh, coming aspects of the story. And the third way we see redemption in this story is actually uh, verse 24. And if you read it, uh, if you don't read it carefully, you can miss this. And most people uh, only read it in a negative sense. But it says that God drove out the man, it would be both Adam and Eve, uh, out of the garden. And he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. When I was younger, especially as a kid, I always thought, wow, man, wouldn't it be great to find the Garden of Eden? And I was like, how do you get around the angel? <laughs> and I was like, oh. It's like, uh, <laughs> but there's more to the story. And uh, um, this one commentator, uh, Jameson uh, Fowlson Brown, is actually a team of commentators, uh, tra- uh, helps us understand this passage. Says this passage should should be rendered. In other words, they think a more accurate way to, to understand this the description of what happened, and and they they being uh, Hebrew experts say it could be translated in this way. 
that he dwelt, he being God, between the cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden. And a fierce fire, or Shekinah, and Shekinah is a Hebrew word for the manifest presence of God's glory. It's the same word that's used when God fills the temple. Okay, this, and it's usually, it's, it's, it's described as a brilliant light. Okay, so here the Shekinah, uh, the fierce fire or Shekinah, the unfold, unfolding itself <clears throat> to preserve the way. Oh, preserve the way to the tree of life. That's different than the prevent the way to the tree of life. And then it goes on and says, this was the mode of worship. In other words, it's a description of how mankind were to interact with the living God now that sin was part of our nature. Uh, The mode of worship now established to show God's anger at sin, but also to teach the mediation of a promised Savior as uh, the way of life as well as access to God. In other words, it's describing how to get back to the tree of life. Uh, They were the same figures as were afterwards in the tabernacle and the temple, right? Where God dwelt between the wings of the cherubim. So here is not an angel that's posted there. It's a cherubim. And uh, we know there's a difference because different times, difference are usually, we don't understand all the difference, but we know that God abides between the wings of the cherubim. And he uh, says that later in, uh, uh, concerning the Ark of the Covenant, but also the tabernacle worship, temple worship. And it's a illustration of how God communes with mankind that he dwells in the midst of the cherubim. And so there is a way back to the tree of life, but that way is is... We, we have to face that fire of God's presence and the sword of God's presence. And what does a sword illustrate? In Scripture, it's often used to illustrate God's Word. Okay? It can actually be an illustration of Jesus, a sharp two-edged sword. All right? It was in his hand. Uh, the Word of God is a sword. And so we have to, in order to get to the tree of life, in order to get back to our our intended created dwelling place in God's presence, in order to get back to the paradise of God's presence, you have to go through the fire and you have to deal with God's word and the sword. Okay, so, so from the very day mankind was separated as a result of sin, God preserved and guarded the way back. And the rest of the ark really is an explanation of that and an illustration of it through the uh, history of the people of Israel and, and many other stories. Jesus said, I am the way. The way to what? The way uh, to the Father, the way back to relationship. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we see this, this, this shadowy illustration from that original story come into more crystal view when we bring Jesus into the picture. So again, we see Jesus in this story as the way back. Well, following the fall, there's a rapid decline in the condition of of mankind. Um, Genesis 4 is a story of Cain and Abel, the first two children, Cain being the firstborn, and uh, Abel, the first two children of Adam and Eve. Um, And... um, you can read the story, uh, Abel and uh, Cain both offered sacrifices and for 
whatever reason, uh, Cain's sacrifice was not accepted, and, and Cain had an issue with that. And God actually talked to Cain. He says, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. One of the primary lessons of Scripture. Sin is lying at the door. Okay? So it's, my, it's like it's hiding at the door. All right? It's not lying like he's laying down sleeping. No, it's, it's hidden trying to catch you. And sin desires to catch you. And God is warning Cain in advance. Be careful here. Uh, uh, and, and saying, you're, you're to rule over it. Oh, that harkens back to Adam and Eve's original calling, to rule over. We're to rule over not only creation, but we're to rule over sin. We're to rule over the serpent. And in the end, we will. Getting ahead of myself. Now Cain talked to his Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were out in the field that Cain rose up against uh, Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother, Abel? And he replied, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother cries out to me from the ground. Wow. Imagine the grief that Adam and Eve had to endure. As a result of their sin, they had to endure the death of their child. And, and the, I think the equal, if not greater, sorrow that their firstborn child be, was a murder that killed his brother. Talk about, you know, a dysfunctional family. Here we have it. And they had to know that this was the direct consequence of their choice. Adam and Eve's sin uh, directly affected their children, and also, Scripture tells us, all of their descendants were affected by that choice. Uh Likewise, friends, (laughs) our sin has consequences that affect those around us especially those in close to us in family. If in this original story describing uh, our, our, our universe, our world, uh, what it means to be human, what it means to be in relationship with God, what it means to, uh, to ha- deal with sin, in this very first story we see that Adam and Eve's sin is passed on to their children and it actually increases in severity. And that Adam and Eve have to witness the destructive effects That's to teach us something. That when we make destructive choices, when we choose sin, it also may have consequences in the lives of those around us, especially in those uh, close to us. It no way minimizes personal responsibility. It actually magnifies personal, our personal responsibility. It informs us that when we sin, we may be partially responsible, or definitely responsible for influencing others, even as Adam and Eve was. Ah, think of that the next time. You have the choice to sin or to, to do right. 
Not only how it will affect you, how will it affect your household, your family, your children, your community, your church? There is a direct, uh, there's a connection. It's a spiritual connection. It's not necessarily, you know, clear to understand, but we see it clearly throughout Scripture. The story also shows the faithfulness of God in trying to uh, convince Cain to do well. And God doesn't give up on his creation. In no way. God wasn't like this mean, angry God that separated himself. Even then, he's pursuing Cain and trying to convince him to do well. And then in a manner similar to when he asked Adam, where are you in the garden? God follows up after the sin and says, "Uh, Cain, where's your brother? What have you done? It's not that God didn't know what Cain had done, right? It's that Cain needed to deal with the consequences of his actions. And so remember, when you make a mistake and you're feeling the shame or the guilt or you want to ignore it and deny it, God's there saying, what have you done? You need to account for what you've done. Because it, 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 you can't just pretend it didn't happen. Right? And God then uh, talks to Cain about the consequences of his sin. But even in that, he shows grace. So we see the redemptive actions of God even after the fall. And things proceed. There's some genealogies. You can study those to your heart's content. <laughs> We're going to skip ahead to the flood. <clears throat> um, Because again, it it just shows this initial few chapters show the rapid decline of mankind after the fall and how sin undermines the the goodness of God's creation and what he intended and uh, ends up causing such uh, death and destruction in in every aspect of life. So Genesis 6, 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I made him. Can you imagine that? God felt sorry. Uh, he, He was grieved. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So sin and its destruction quickly spread everywhere to the point where everything was evil. The intent, every intent of their heart was evil. Uh, and the Lord was sorry. And the word uh, that's translated sorry and grieved actually means that his heart was rent or torn. Uh, it means he was heartbroken. Right? It didn't mean that he thought he made a mistake. It meant that the, the choices of his beloved creation broke his heart. And you know what? That's exactly what God feels every time one of us sin. It breaks his heart because we're making choices that bring destruction upon us, destruction upon our families, destruction upon our communities. So God deals with this uh, uh, initially with a great flood, but it says Noah found grace, even in the story. And this is the first mention of the concept and the word grace in Scripture. So in the, the, the destruction, the, the, the judgment that God brings on the earth as a result of sin, there's grace. And so salvation that Noah and his family 
had access to came through grace. Salvation through grace is introduced right here at the beginning, long before the law. Uh, Salvation was never possible through the law. It was always to point to the coming Messiah who came uh, because of grace. And right from the beginning, we see that the uh, 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 salvation is through grace. And where did Noah find it? He found it in the eyes of the Lord. And so when Noah looked to the Lord and the Lord saw Noah, there was grace. And the whole flood is filled with symbolism of redemption. Quickly, just to summarize, the the three questions that we ask in each part of the arc of the story is where is Jesus revealed? I've already mentioned it. But Jesus is the way to the tree of life. He's the sacrifice made to cover mankind. He's the seed that destroys the work of the devil. He's the grace that Moses found. He's the ark that carried them through uh, the flood that saved them. He's the rainbow that marks God's promise. And there's many, many other references in these stories, if you study more deeply, to Jesus as a redeemer, as the coming Messiah, as the hope for mankind. What does this part of the ark mean to us? What revel or uh, relevance does it have for us today? I think it informs us why the world is prone to sin and destructive behavior. If if that was the case way back, so close to creation, so close to the manifest presence of God when things were new, how much more now after so many thousands and thousands of years of human activity uh, that we would be prone to destruction, prone to division, prone to strife? It answers the question, why is everything so bad? It just amazes me that one thing that everyone agrees almost universally on planet Earth, we don't agree to the solution, but everybody agrees there's a problem. And so this gives us an understanding of what that problem really is, and it points us to a God who continues to care and provide a way to confront sin, to hold us accountable, but also to uh, point us towards salvation. So what can we do to to apply this into our lives? What are some practical things? And what I would suggest and uh, what I find helpful is to put myself into these stories, right? The next time you're tempted, or if you're being tempted right now, (laughs) um, to violate what uh, God, uh, what you know is God, uh, I'm sorry, The next time you're tempted to buy, I can't even read the screen. What you know is God's best for you, all right? Okay, picture yourself in the garden listening to a snake-like guy, all right? Make the right choice, really. When you're tempted, and most often you know when you're being tempted, stop and go, okay, that inclination to do what I know God doesn't want, it's a snake talking to me. So often we always go, well, why did Adam and Eve, they had it so easy. Why didn't they make the right choice? Guess what? You get that same option. Make the right choice. The next time you're angry with someone like Cain was with his brother, recognize that you have a choice to do well and be accepted or to allow that anger to grow and then uh, reveal itself in a destructive way, even murder When it seems like the whole world is moving away from God like it did in Noah's time, look for God's eye and find grace and then do what he says, even if he sounds, even what he he tells you sounds ridiculous. 
which I'm sure it sounded ridiculous to Noah, to build an ark to carry all the animals. But he did it. 